1: for details. That's R A K U T E N. Your cash back really adds up. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell.
2: As the situation deteriorated, in Afghanistan, U.S. forces built up, including with President Obama's decision to essentially triple the force between 2009 and 2010 to almost 100,000 troops for a couple years. That force was able to really push the Taliban back to essentially 2006 levels or so. But after we drew down, they came back and the Taliban now control more territory in Afghanistan than they did certainly a decade ago
0: us a picture of what you think would happen in Afghanistan if we pulled
2: out. I think it would very much look what it looked like in Iraq, which is U.S. withdrawals don't mean the end of a conflict. In in a lot of cases, the U.S. pulls out its forces. Essentially, if it went to the Iraq model and then even worse, um, reduced aid, because Afghanistan is more dependent on international aid for defense than Iraq ever was, um, that you would see something like that. So what should we do?
0: You know, if you were advising the president about what he should do in Afghanistan, what would you tell him?
2: So I think he has to reframe the narrative and our aims. Our aims are not to turn Afghanistan into some Central Asian Valhalla, as my old boss Bob Gates said, but to ensure that we don't get hit from that region again like we did on, on 9-11. I think you can reduce the presence by up to half. If we went strictly to the Iraq model after 2011, where we po- pulled out all our forces, and our forward intelligence presence, I think you'd see a lot of Taliban gains. If we really cut off aid, I think you'd see a government collapse.
0: Michael Vickers was the longest-serving Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence from 2011 to 2015. In that job, he led a global operation that included the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Previously, Mike served as the department's assistant secretary of defense for special operations. He also served in the U.S. Army as a special forces officer and in the CIA as an operations officer. Now Mike serves as an advisor and a member of board of directors for several private sector companies. I just had a chance to sit down with Mike to discuss the most recent developments in Afghanistan, America's longest war in history. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Mike, it's uh, great to have you back on the show.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: So our listeners may not know this, but we do hear Intelligence Matters pay attention to the feedback we get. And a number of folks have told us recently that they would love to have us spend an episode talking about Afghanistan. And given where we are today in Afghanistan with the peace talks and the continuing attacks by the Taliban, this seems like a great time to do that. And you are the perfect person, I think, to do that because you've spent so much time thinking about this country from a variety of different perspectives. And so, Mike, I'm going to spend most of our time talking about Afghanistan, but I do want to ask you up front about two other issues that are in the news. The first is the DNI. Dan Coates, the former DNI, and Sue Gordon, the, the former principal deputy director um, of national intelligence, have both stepped down. Joe McGuire, the former uh, director of the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, is now the acting DNI. The president is looking for uh, permanent replacement for Dan and for Sue. What stands out to you in all of this? How do you think about this?
2: Well, I think this is an unusual selection because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. I think uh, I've known Joe for a lot of years, and he'll do a really good job as uh, acting director. He's a he's a real straight shooter, uh, queer uh, military officer, Navy SEAL. But it seems to me the credibility uh, of the DNI is very important. Dan Coates had that, and Sue Gordon had that. Trusted on the Hill, trusted um, by the American people to tell it straight. And I think that's critically important. You know, given that the Russians intervened in our election um, last time and they continue to do that and will do that in 2020, having a DNI that really will tell it straight to the Congress, to the American people, and then therefore has bipartisan support, I think is really critical. You know, that's always important in an intelligence officer. It's even more important now. So I hope they pick someone with... uh, an intelligence professional, essentially, that that has that credibility and 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 nonpartisan nature.
0: The second issue, Mike, is the rebound of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. There's now been multiple statements from U.S. and foreign officials about that. People are talking about 14 to 18,000 ISIS guys along that Iraq-Syria border. How do you think about how do you think about this?
2: Sure. Well, you know the 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 physical caliphate was uh, liberated and destroyed, but ISIS fighters haven't gone away. They just scattered, and so ISIS is far from defeated in that region, and the pressure on them um, has reduced. And so, uh, as you know from our experience in counterterrorism, the longer you let terrorist groups reconstitute, the more dangerous they become if if, if they have some form of sanctuary and can plan, and so. It's very important to keep pressure on. Uh, if you look at what the emergence of ISIS is, it morphed from Al Qaeda in Iraq to ISIS. Last time, they had a very systematic campaign in the Sunni areas, targeting uh, tribal leaders who had risen up against them. and And by twenty fourteen, they you know they were able to take uh, big chunks of Iraq, and so the the danger is still there very much. Um, this relates in some way to the Afghanistan topic, but. Like it or not, we face global jihadi threats in four areas of the uh, Near East and and, and North Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan uh, being one, Syria, Iraq, another, sort of Yemen, Somalia, and then North Africa sort of centered on Libya but into the Sahel. And we have to continue to um, keep pressure on those groups so they don't pose a threat to the American homeland.
0: Okay, Mike, Afghanistan, perhaps a little history first. Can you walk us through a kind of a rough arc of the war in Afghanistan from 9-11 to today, kind of the cliff notes version of that?
2: Sure. So after the horrendous 9-11 attacks, uh, um, the U.S. mounted a very successful campaign to depose the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda sanctuary in in Afghanistan uh, that basically took um, a few months to accomplish. But Al Qaeda and the Taliban didn't go away. Most of them, certainly all the key leadership, fled to uh, Pakistan. Some went to Iran, where they reconstituted a threat. The Taliban, beginning in about 2003, um, started uh, insurgency up again in Afghanistan. We had battles in 2002, but they were more people still trying to get out of Afghanistan. Um, And until... Roughly 2008, the war was mostly concentrated in the south or the Pashtun heartland around Kandahar, um, and then then it became um, more lethal both in the east and south. Uh, as the situation deteriorated in Afghanistan, U.S. forces built up, uh, concluding with President Obama's decision uh, to essentially triple the force uh, between 2009 and 2010 to almost 100,000 troops for a couple years. That force was able to really push the Taliban back um, to essentially 2006 levels or so. But after we drew down, they, come, they came back as we transitioned to a, uh, in 2014 to a train, advise, and assist or supporting mission. And the Taliban now control more territory in Afghanistan um, than they did um, certainly a, a decade ago. And attacks are, are are just as numerous. And what's
0: been the relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda
2: during that period? Um, so the primary, uh, the Taliban had never really en- renounced uh, Al Qaeda, but the core Taliban leadership had been centered in Quetta, Pakistan, in the in the south of Pakistan. Um, one of their arms, the Haqqani Network, in, uh, centered in North Waziristan, has provided sanctuary uh, to al-Qaeda for um, decades uh, and has planned with them and and, and done attacks, as has a, a related group, the Pakistani Taliban, uh, that have the same philosophy but have, have different leadership and are on the Pakistan side. And so there's been a very close relationship um between insurgents and global jihadists.
0: So, Mike, I want to talk just for a second about ISIS in Afghanistan, which you mentioned before. What's the relationship between the Taliban and ISIS? It's a bit different than it is between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, correct?
2: It, it is. Um, so um, ISIS in Afghanistan, Pakistan, is 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 what the ISIS calls a province of its its central command or – uh, ISIS-Khorasan, an ancient name, a uh, region that spans part of Iran, part of China, Central Asia, and, and Afghanistan. Um, and ISIS was formed in 2014, ISIS-Afghanistan was formed, or Khorasan, in 2014-2015 from defectors from the Taliban a- and also defectors from the Pakistan Taliban or the Tehrik-i Taliban Pakistan. Um, Number of those leaders has had have been killed, but they've developed a a, a fairly lethal force, rising to about three thousand fighters or so. Now they may be down to under a couple thousand. Uh, they've been battered uh, pretty heavily by um, U.S. air power and Afghan special operations um, forces, but. There's still a formidable threat as witnessed by the attack in Kabul on this um, wedding, Hazara wedding ceremony last uh, last few days.
0: There was a New York Times piece, Mike, I don't know, about a week ago, week and a half ago, that talked about a bit of a debate between the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence community about whether ISIS in Afghanistan is a threat to the homeland. And the article said the military... Sees a bigger threat than the IC sees. What's your sense?
2: Yeah, I'm more on the IC side of this. That they're for now, they're really a regional threat. Most global jihadist groups are real; only have the capabilities to do regional uh, attacks, and um, that tends to be their priority anyway. That doesn't mean they don't have the ambition to do global attacks. They share the same ideology, but ISIS. Um, Afghanistan at this point doesn't have the same uh, extra regional capabilities that ISIS and Syria, for example, had until they, they were um, really battered, being able to attack in Europe and threaten the United States. Um, if you look at al-Qaeda, you see the same kind of pattern. Core al-Qaeda had that for the longest time. Al-Qaeda in Yemen and Al-Qaeda in Syria developed it to a bit. Other groups, Somalia, North Africa, really have been regional, or Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. So this falls in that pattern. But they certainly have the ambition to do it. And
0: then let's maybe kind of one more kind of setting the stage question here. I understand this is not in what you do every day, but what's your sense of what the level of political support there is in the United States to maintain our involvement in in Afghanistan?
2: Well, that's certainly one of the uh, uh, challenges that that we face is, um, you know, somewhat certainly President Trump, but also several prominent Democrats running for president have pledged to withdraw forces from Afghanistan. And I think the one national security is really not a front burner issue in our politics right now, despite the fact that the threats to the United States from a rising China and a resurgent Russia and regional powers and global jihadists is greater than it's been since the cold war. There's just this disconnect there. And I think too many of our, uh, senior political leaders tend to view Afghanistan through a prism of Vietnam as a local war that you can just exit rather than a fight with global jihadists, uh, that will go on for a long time and really just look at it as a, as a source of funds, you know, that, uh, they would rather redeploy those funds um, uh, to the United States, uh, but at some risk. So that's certainly a challenge for national security professionals to try to shape that debate in some way about the danger uh, if we tend to view uh, this war with the global jihadists through the wrong prism. You know, the comparison I like to draw is that The Colombian insurgency has been going on for 55 years. So Afghanistan may be America's longest war, and it's a small war at this point, um, more of an intelligence war. Um, But Colombia has been going on three times as long as that. And they're on the verge of getting to a... peace. They've had kind of on and off peace agreements, but it took strong U.S. support through the last decade and a half to really get them to that point.
0: So let's kind of... Mike, move forward to where we are today and militarily, where would you say we are between the Taliban and the Afghan security forces? Where, where's that balance?
2: So the, the Afghan government, you know, controls the major population centers, uh, and certainly most of the lines of communications, uh, between them. Um, but the insurgency has been getting stronger. And so if you look at the number of attacks, they've uh, ramped up after 2014, and they've um, been maintained at a fairly high level besides, uh, despite some changes in, in U.S. strategy. As long as the U.S. is engaged in providing uh, material but also psychological support, uh, to the Afghan security forces and provides air power and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. The Taliban can't win.
0: Can't they, get to those populations. Yeah. And mean.
2: so, in fact, what you see is a lot of the Taliban attacks, they'll do their high profile attacks occasionally or, or uh, other groups like ISIS um, recently in Kabul uh, will do spectacular attacks in Kabul. Um, but most are now attacks on outposts. And uh, whereas a couple years ago, the Taliban were able to overrun district centers because we had more restrictions on air power. So the U.S. is a pretty critical uh, variable in this balance of power. Uh, you know, if you look at it on paper, Afghan national security forces are about a uh, high three hundred thousands. Of course, not everybody is manning their position. All not everybody times. shows up for <laughs> not work. Everybody shows up for work. Um, and the Taliban and all insurgents are, you know, a tenth of that or yeah. so.
0: Yeah, what's your sense of the quality of Afghan security forces?
2: Um, it varies. It's one of the reasons for a shift in in strategy is that um, we now use um, Afghan special forces as the primary offensive and force, good. and they're they're pretty good. They're very well trained. Um, and then the the large corps in Afghanistan, the conventional forces, are are there to follow up and then uh, try to hold ground. the The Afghan police have taken the brunt. Of, of a lot of these attacks particularly in small outposts you know for the last several years afghan security forces have been losing uh, and killed in action what the united states lost in the totality of the iraq war every year mm. uh five to ten thousand troops essentially every year so it's they've paid quite a high cost
0: we're going to take a quick break then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with mike vickers
2: Introducing CBS Sunday Morning on the radio. Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley. Experience thought-provoking, innovative, and truly original reporting. How dangerous is this work? Well, it's not a rocket of power. Because there's always
1: something new under the sun on CBS Sunday Morning. Your Obama is one of your most memorable impressions. You trying to get me to do it? Yes, actually, thank you. (laughs) Is that what that is? Every Sunday morning on the CBS Radio Network.
0: Okay, Mike, the peace talks, Mm -hmm. the status of those, I know the deal that's being discussed is not public, but some pieces of it have leaked out. Can you give us a sense of of what that might look like as a starter to the discussion on that?
2: Sure. So there's really two key elements to this. The first is that these are talks between the United States and the Taliban, not, as you'd expect, between the Afghan government. The Taliban have refused to do that thus far. So talks that have been going on, there are several rounds. I think we're in our ninth round now uh, over the past um, year, thereabouts, um, in Doha, gutter have been between the Taliban and our special envoy, uh, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. There's four pillars um, to the peace talks. A, a, the troop withdrawal, the Taliban want all U.S. troops out of the country. Counterterrorism guarantees, from the U.S. perspective, want the Taliban to... Uh, affirm that they're they've broken with al-qaeda and that they will not provide sanctuary not let the territory of afghanistan be used um, for these terrorist groups that could mount attacks on the u.s homeland and then direct negotiation or peace talks with the afghan government intra-afghan talks um, and then finally a ceasefire and so there was quick agreement on the basic, uh, framework for a troop withdrawal and these counterterrorism guarantees early in the year. And the talks have been essentially stalemated since on these last two. Uh, and that really is the rub. The U S has made essentially concessions to the Taliban without getting the intra Afghan dialogue. The, the Taliban consider the Afghan government illegitimate and we'll if they talk to them, they'll, they say they'll only talk to them in personal capacity, not, in, not as a government, but as just as Afghans. Um, and then the ceasefire. It uh, should give Americans pause that the Taliban offensive for 2019 is uh, named Operation Victory. Uh, they're continuing to fighting. The leader right. of the Taliban has said, we're going to fight till we achieve our objectives. And so a ceasefire is a long way off. So
0: do you think the Taliban... I guess this is the fundamental question. Do you think the Taliban is willing to live up to the commitments that it makes?
2: I don't think their commitments mean much um, on the counterterrorism side because, number one, uh, you know, if you look at some of their attitudes where they've recently said um, the U.S. deserved 9-11 for its interventionist policies and its uh, intention to continue fighting um, uh, until it achieves its objectives – Second, the Taliban is not a monolithic movement. It splinters off groups. uh, ISIS in Afghanistan is one of them. So even if they had the intention of controlling, and they could really only do that if they were the government rather than power sharing in a government, which they just see as a step toward what they, they really want. But then also there are significant Taliban elements linked with the global jihadists that are in Pakistan, the Haqqani Network, for example. And so... It really seems to me their counterterrorism guarantees can be on paper, but it's hard to see how they would have the capability or uh, to, to, to really police them, even if they wanted to, just given the dispersity of the threat, the fragmentation of the threat, and um, um, their limited control. You know, what we have in Afghanistan right now is a friendly government with large security forces supported by the United States, advisors, and air power. The Taliban with the best of intentions would be orders of magnitude below that. Right, right.
0: So, Mike, paint us us a picture of what you think would happen in Afghanistan if
2: we pulled out. Um, So I think it would very much um, look like what it looked like in Iraq, which is U.S. withdrawals don't mean – the end of a conflict. They just mean, in in a lot of cases, the U.S. pulls out its forces. And so, um, you know, we maintained an embassy in Iraq after 2011. We had robust intelligence forces, but we essentially had uh, disengaged from our military campaign in terms of advisors and others, and we were providing security assistance, much as we do with many countries around the world. In the subsequent three years, ISIS did a systematic campaign, first through assassination and other things, to coerce Sunni areas. And then uh, our big investment in the Iraqi security forces uh, essentially almost collapsed as ISIS was on the gates of Baghdad. And so I think within a matter of years, um, if the U.S., reduced aid, and it's essentially if it went to the Iraq model and then even worse, um, reduced aid because Afghanistan is more dependent on international aid for defense than Iraq ever was, um, that you would see something like that.
0: And then how long before the extremist groups that would be surviving in that environment, how long before they would, in your mind, become a threat to the homeland?
2: So it usually takes a couple of years uh, if they're left unmolested. Um, but that would occur during that period. You know, from the time that um, the U.S. essentially withdraws, those groups would be unmolested, whether they're aligned with the Taliban or not. And nobody would be policing them.
0: Yeah. So, Mike, here's maybe a tough question, in some ways impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You're not the only one who thinks the way you just said most national security officials believe what you just said about Afghanistan. So with that in mind, do the diplomats who are negotiating with the Taliban understand this or are they deluding themselves into believing that the Taliban is actually going to do what they say? What
2: do you think? Well, I think they, you know, is Secretary Pompeo made clear the other day they have their marching orders from the president, and I think they're trying to do the best they can, um, you know, given the circumstances. Unfortunately, you know, I, as you said, most national security professionals would be very skeptical of this. And I, I think as uh, uh, our former uh, ambassador to Afghanistan twice and five other countries, Ryan Crocker, said, that this isn't a peace deal, this is surrender. And that's, it's hard to see how it becomes less than that. You know, the Pentagon just released a report that while, you know, some of the the global jihadist threat has been beaten down significantly in the Afghanistan-Pakistan theater, it still is the greatest concentration of global jihadists on the planet. And that's when they've been pounded for 18 years. You know, imagine after they have a couple years where no one's pounding.
0: So, Mike, there's a parallel here, and you actually mentioned it already, Vietnam. There's a parallel here, I think, between Afghanistan and Vietnam. Paris peace talks, North Vietnamese agree that they're not going to send troops south two years later. Saigon falls. People often make this comparison. Um, I've heard Bob Gates make it. I've heard others make it. One of the things that stands out to me, though, is the consequences of it happening in Afghanistan are so much greater than the consequences of what happened in Vietnam, because of the ability of these extremist groups to reach out and touch us. Is that
2: is that your sense too? That is because again the the aims of the global jihadist movement is to start this uh, global war with the United States as its its main enemy, and then local enemies uh, uh, also on the list from time to time. You know if the if the global jihadist played by Las Vegas roles that what happened in Las Vegas stayed in Las Vegas. It would be like Vietnam or Lebanon, for example. We withdrew from Lebanon after Hezbollah bombings in the 1980s. Hezbollah didn't really follow us home. They remained a very serious threat, but they're different from the, the, the global jihadists. Our experience uh, with the jihadists, certainly before and after 9-11 in the, in the two decades, is that when you give them a respite or they have a, a, a safe haven, they exploit it um, for their aims. And that's just the reality of the world that that we live in.
0: Yeah, so, you know, we, you and I worked together for a long time on counterterrorism. And I think for me, you know, one of the fundamental lessons learned is if you do not keep pressure on these guys, they bounce back and they bounce back pretty quickly.
2: Yes, I agree.
0: So, Here's another tough question. I've asked you a whole bunch of tough questions. Here's another one. So what should we do? You know, if you were advising the president about what he should do in Afghanistan, what would you tell him?
2: And so I think he has to reframe the narrative that, uh, you know, and and our aims. Our aims are not to turn Afghanistan into some Central Asian Valhalla, as my old boss Bob Gates said, um, but to ensure that we don't get hit from that region again like we did on on nine eleven. Now, that's not that American values don't matter. Afghanistan has been an area where American national security interests and values have coincided to a degree. You know, when um, in 2001 there were uh, only several hundred thousand children in school in Afghanistan. None of them were girls today. There's 8 million 40% of them are are girls and women occupy positions of, of power um, in politics and, and, and commerce and, and that's all to the good. Um, but there is a significant cost with Afghanistan. There's been a cost in American lives. Um, there's a tremendous financial cost. Uh, we supply $4 billion or so to uh, fund the Afghan National Security Forces. The government of Afghanistan provides about a tenth of that. They're just not able to stand on their own two feet in that regard. And... Um, Uh, The cost of our deployment is several billion more, Um, but it's it's cheap compared to the cost of another 9-11. And that's the that's the challenge for national security policy and and our our political leaders. Uh, Again, I look at, you know, the Columbia example where we're better off with Columbia today than we would have been with the FARC. They were relatively modest uh, investments in certainly in U.S. dollars uh, to, to produce that result. But it took a lot of time. It took a lot more than 18 years um, to get to get that result.
0: So you would maintain our presence there? You would...
2: Yeah, I would keep I think you can reduce the presence by up to half. Uh, President Trump inherited, you know, 88,000 plus troops, you know, added another five, six thousand in his own little mini surge. Um, there's talk in the first stage of a withdrawal of going back, to essentially reversing the mini surge. I think we can carry out our intelligence mission and our counterterrorism mission with that reduced footprint. But that's about the the best I think we can uh, do. If we went strictly to the Iraq model after 2011, uh, where we pull, pulled out all our forces uh, and our forward intelligence presence, Um, I think you'd see a lot of Taliban gains. If we really cut off aid, I think you'd see a government collapse.
0: But you you don't hear anybody talking about this $4 billion in aid, right? What happens to that as part of this deal, right? Right. It's interesting. So let's say, Mike, and you've been in the sit room many times. Let's say the president decided to do what you recommended, right, and to keep troops there indefinitely until until there are conditions, right, that ensure that we are protected in our homeland, which, by the way, is what he decided in 2017, right? Right. How How would you sell that to the American people who are so tired of this war?
2: So, again, I think that's the task of political leadership to reframe the question of the conflict we find ourselves in with global jihadists. And, you know, the same applies to Syria and Iraq, or Yemen and Somalia or North Africa. Um, you know, if you can, if you can safely pull out of um, Syria and Iraq and, you know, we're, we we seem to be in the midway phase of that and you can do it in Afghanistan. Well, why not the other theaters as well? And then of course, your risk gets magnified as, as this global jihadist threat has multiple theaters from which to operate.
0: Mike, one last question, and you've spent more time from a policy perspective and an operational perspective looking at Afghanistan, maybe more than anybody else. And I'm just wondering, looking back, if you see lost opportunities in terms of how the U.S. has approached Afghanistan, you know, after the Russians left, were there lost opportunities after the Taliban was pushed from power and al-Qaeda was pushed into Pakistan where there are lost opportunities? You know, did we overreach with our goals? Was Vice President Biden right at the end of the day in saying our policy should be counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency? How do you think about that?
2: I think all those are good points. So certainly, you know, in the 90s, um, by viewing Afghanistan as a local problem and then doing periodic... Uh, missile strike after uh, embassy bombings in 1998, that was a path that led us uh, to 9-11. And um, and we certainly don't want to repeat that experience. Now, uh, you know, Afghanistan had a horrible civil war after the Soviets were driven out uh, that eventually brought the Taliban to power. We had broken relations essentially with Pakistan, not formal diplomatic relations, but it cut off all military aid and had very strained um, relationship and so, um, you know, it was not an easy uh, situation. I think, um, but we we nevertheless CIA I thought was quite prescient in identifying the danger of the Afghan sanctuary in the late 90s, and we didn't do enough about it uh, after um, 9/11. I think um, Iraq diverted us to some degree from uh, Afghanistan. But I think also our, our aims and what could be accomplished, I do, I do agree with the point that I think we overreached and that our long-term strategy in Afghanistan has to be counterterrorism with reasonable uh, nation-building because it's got to be sustained a long time. Um, we never really solved the problem of the Pakistan sanctuary, uh, which prolongs the war uh, dramatically. And so there have been a number of... Um, things I think we could have done better over time. But given where we are now, you know, if you look at if the aim of America's intelligence and defense establishments is really to prevent a big attack on the United States, whether through deterrence or through um, limited action, Afghanistan and all of our counterterrorism efforts are really uh, small fraction of our national security investment and you know the return is is, is is reasonably good in terms of security for the American people
0: so if I was going to sum up our conversation it would be Afghanistan remains an extremely important national security issue and we're at a critical inflection point here and we can do the right thing or we can make another mistake
2: yes I think that's
0: right Mike it's been great to have you on the show well,
2: it's great to be here
0: That was Mike Vickers. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at IntelMattersPod. And follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.